Tommy, can you see me? Tommy, can you hear me? Was Tommy undergoing cortical brain mapping? You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Mitchell S. Berger. Dr. Berger is the Kathleen M. Plant Distinguished Professor and Chairman of the Department of Neurological Surgery at the University of California, San Francisco. He is an internationally renowned expert on gliomas. Dr. Berger directs the Brain Tumor Surgery Program, the Neurosurgical Research Centers, and Brain Tumor Research Center at UCSF. Dr. Berger is currently the Principal Investigator of UCSF's Specialized Program on Research Excellence, or SPORE, Brain Tumor Program, and the BTRC's Program in Neuro-Oncology, both of which are funded by the National Cancer Institute and the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Language mapping, while the patient is awake, is an intraoperative technique designed to minimize language deficits associated with brain tumor resection. In January 2008, Mitch, you published an article, Functional Outcome After Language Mapping for Glioma Resection. How is the approach you took different from what had been done traditionally? Well, the difference has been in the ability to focus the exposed amount of cortex down to a minimum. In other words, in the traditional setting, it was always taught that we had to expose a very large portion of the cortex so that we could find positive sites for various aspects of language so that we could then rely on the negative data that we got in a given area. That was the traditional teaching. Now, as time has gone on and I've focused my resections down to just the tumor and therefore mapping the brain over and just around the tumor, it's occurred to me that this data has been just as reliable and robust through the years as when we had to find positive sites. So many times now we only conduct the mapping to the point where we're just over the tumor. If we don't find any positive language sites, we feel comfortable with proceeding. So that's the paradigm shift. And just over the tumor would be determined by preoperative functional imaging? That's correct. So we use both anatomical imaging or MRI to define the mass itself and then whatever functional imaging is available we can use to superimpose it on that MRI scan and get a sense preoperatively of where we're likely to find function. Now gliomas are infiltrative tumors so the margins I would assume are hard to define. Do you have to expand your area of mapping a little bit further outside the obvious tumor area? Well, the good news about imaging nowadays without relying on CT anymore is that MR is so sensitive in terms of defining the true extent of the disease that we're really able to base the whole exposure and resection on the anatomy of the tumor defined by MR. So it's actually allowed us to reduce the size of the exposures, I think, and it's made it much more comfortable for the patient, shorter operating time, et cetera. For the sort of visualization of our audience, basically if the MRI showed a tumor of, say, two centimeters, the area that you would map would be in that area, or roughly what size areas are we actually talking about? Exactly. I think the area would be that we would map would be just overlying the tumor plus about a two-centimeter margin. So we know that 
the majority of the tumor in a glioma is located within about two centimeters of its defined region by MRI. So we don't have to go much beyond what we see on the MRI scan to know that we can remove 98 plus percent of the lesion. What were your findings and how did they compare to traditional mapping and were you surprised by anything you found? Well, I think the biggest surprise was the paucity or lack of sites in the dominant hemisphere that were critical for language functions observing reading and naming. In other words, we had always been taught as medical students that there is a significant amount of the temporal lobe, for example, on the left side in a right-handed person that is likely to have reading or naming, i.e. object recognition, function in it. The surprise was that instead of finding the vast majority of, for example, the posterior superior temporal lobe to be highly involved with speech, we found that the majority of those regions did not have language function in them. Now, I think what this does is it calls into question the traditional language system maps that we've all learned, which are based upon destructive lesions, such as strokes or brain trauma, and then the clinical course of that defined by our neurology examinations, etc. So, you know, I think it's a much tighter area than we thought language is located primarily around the sylvian fissure, which is defined by the superior aspect of the temporal lobe, inferior frontal and inferior parietal. That's one thing. The other important surprise here was that there was a tremendous variability in language amongst people. There are no two people on this planet with the same exact language maps, and that's what makes language mapping so critical. I'd like to welcome those who are just joining us. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and my guest today is Dr. Mitchell S. Berger, professor and chair of neurosurgery at the University of California, San Francisco, and we're discussing language mapping for glioma resection. So it's almost like fingerprints that there's no two copies the same. Do you think it has anything to do with how much reading we did as kids or, you know, our vocabulary? Are there any correlations that somebody might say in, you know, in talking to someone that you might say their language area is centered one area versus another? Well, that's a very good question, and we just do not know the answer to that. I did one study a few years ago and published this showing that the difference in language localization in children under the age of eight versus over the age of eight is significantly different. So, in other words, we find less perisylvian location of language sites in the very young child. What that probably indicates is not so much about how much we read or how much we think as young individuals, but it's more of a physiological issue that has to do with language probably being located in neurons deep in the crevices or the sulci that then migrate out over the first several years of life onto the surface. And then it takes on the adult appearance later in childhood. So I think it really is more of a physiologic function than it is a socialization issue. Are there things that as 
educators. We should be teaching our children that might result in either broader language areas or additional language areas developed. I'm thinking of the neuroplasticity issue and that the ongoing development of the brain throughout life. You know, sort of protect ourselves for the eventual problems of later life. Well, one interesting thing that I've learned and, again, published on through the years is the acquisition of different language systems subserving different languages, especially if those different languages are learned early in life, probably before the age of 10. In other words, if an individual learns a second or third language at the age of 5 or 6, the likelihood that there will be separate language tracks imprinted in the brain is much greater for a given function. In other words, if I show a patient a ball and I ask them to say the word ball in English or Turkish or Russian, if they've learned those languages early in life under the age of 10, they're more likely to have different cortical regions that subserve the naming of that one noun. And I think if I was an educator, what I would certainly promote is more language understanding, you know, different languages early on in life, the ability to learn different languages, I think is definitely a worthwhile exercise in terms of creating new language systems in the brain. It's much better than when you're older to do that. Bringing this back to neurosurgery, since you spoke about multilingual, does a multilingual patient present you with any difficulties in mapping? And how do you approach that patient? Well, that's a good question. It definitely extends the time because when a patient tells me that they are multilingual, I have to map each of those languages, and I will ask them if they're willing to sacrifice one of those languages, which one would it be? Because sometimes I'll find regions of the tumor I'd like to remove that subserve one language, and if they've indicated to me that they would be willing to sacrifice that, then I'm willing to take that out. Another question pertaining to the surgery. Language requires not only the cortical language sites, but also the language tracks. Are there risks to not doing subcortical language mapping in a patient undergoing tumor resection? Well, there can be, and I think we don't really know a lot about the subcortical systems that subserve the cortical sites of origin of language. We're learning now with imaging techniques using diffusion tensor imaging how to connect these dots, meaning how to connect the cortical regions of origin of a language function with their subcortical tracts. Now, as we understand that more and more, we're really going to need to be able to map those subcortical pathways to a much more significant degree. It's basically the same technique. It just takes longer to do. But as you go deeper into the brain to remove a tumor, that becomes a much more important issue. Do tumors have a predilection for somatosensory areas, language areas? It just seems from the background reading I was doing, there were so many more studies on mapping language than there are mapping motor function. Well, there are lots of good studies on motor function. I mean, I think we've mapped that out very nicely, meaning we as neurosurgeons who are into this form of surgical technique, we really understand the motor system, the sensory system. They're much more aligned in terms of the general population. We always know where motor is going to be or sensory And we do that routinely, much more than I think we ever do language mapping. It's just that it's not as interesting in terms of the things we publish and the new discoveries we make. 
So the use of mapping, cortical and subcortical mapping, to define motor and sensory systems is well worked out. We use this routinely as a technique. It's absolutely indispensable to help us avoid hemiparesis or hemisensory loss. I understand. So it's really the fingerprinting that's so different for the language areas compared to the motor, which is fairly standard. Absolutely. I'd like to thank Dr. Mitchell Berger, who's been my guest, and we've been discussing language mapping for glioma resection. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Register with promo code RADIO and receive six months of free audio streaming for your home or office. If you have comments or suggestions, call us at 888-MD-XM-157. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I wish you good day and good health.